Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your affliction. We thank you for your suffering in our place. Lord, we do sing out in praise as the barren woman does. Lord, we have hope for a new day, for a new city. Lord, we just ask that you strengthen us this morning to know how great your love is for us. Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to you, that we will see you for who you are, we will see your great love and your mercy, and it will reform us. It will melt our hearts. It will change our values and restructure the way that we think. Lord, be with us this morning. Lord, help us. In your name, amen. Well, we've been talking about the gospel here for the last two weeks. If you're visiting with us, my name is Lawrence Simmons. I'm one of the pastors here in the church, and we've finished up our summer series talking about the gathering of God's people. Next week, George starts a series on Titus, which I'm very excited for, talking about the purpose and function of the church, the mission of the church, what we're called to as a church. But we thought we should use these couple of weeks leading into that to remind ourselves Right, to focus on what it is that we truly believe and what is our motivation for all the things that we're doing. It's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, we spent time in Luke 15 with the story of the prodigal son, but really we saw how there was two sons in that story and really how the, the gospel is unlike anything. The gospel is not moralism. The gospel is not here, do these things and you will be blessed. Nor is the gospel relativism. You're free to do whatever you want. But it's a third thing. It's a completely different thing. Because in that story of last week, we saw Jesus redefined what it meant to be lost. We're not just lost through our bad decisions, but we can also be lost through our good decisions. That our goodness can keep us from God as well. Because both bad decisions, good decisions, bad lives, good lives, ultimately it's the same. It's pride. It's you saving yourself, doing what you think is right. And then Jesus redefines salvation through that story last week of what it means to be saved, that it's the humble who are in, it's the proud who are out. There no longer is this division of good people and bad people in the world. There's the humble and there's the arrogant. That we are saved by sheer grace, by nothing we can do, that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but rather we have to have our hearts moved by the love and the cost of what it took to bring us home. And when we see the cost of what it took to bring me home, to reconcile me, I can no longer be proud. I can no longer be arrogant. I'm cut. And that brings us then to today. The question that we wanted to address today then is what difference does the gospel actually make in our lives? Right? What, what's the point of the gospel then? If this is the gospel, if the gospel, the good news of salvation is that it's the humble who are in, not the strong, but it's the humble. If that's true, if this is what it means, then what difference does that actually make for us? What does it give us? And so I want to look at Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 54 today to look at this. And in Isaiah 53, and as Deirdre read it, right, you get this image of a suffering servant, that suffering Messiah. All the way through Scripture, all the way from Genesis onwards, there's always been this promise of a Messiah. There's always been the promise of a king, the promise of this anointed one, the savior who will bring peace, who will undo sin and death and evil, who will bring in justice, who will bring righteousness, 
who will be a better David, a better Moses, a better Joshua. There's always this hope all the way through the Old Testament. If you've been in this church long enough, you've, you've heard this a lot as we've gone through the Old Testament. There's always been that promise. And in Isaiah, the early parts of Isaiah tells you those promises too. Some of the most famous passages, right? Isaiah 9, the passage everyone reads at Christmas time, right? Emmanuel, God with us, and peace. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will bring peace. He will bring justice. His kingdom will have no end. All of these things. And then you get to Isaiah 53. And this is probably the most controversial chapter in the Bible. Because this image of this Messiah, this king, this promised child that's supposed to come is confounding. But it's confounding in a lot of ways. It's really shocking and difficult to interpret in a lot of ways. And the first is just the violence that is going to happen to this promised king promised prince who will come, the one who is supposed to bring in justice, the one who will smite our enemies, who will lift up the poor and the afflicted and bring justice to the world, right? I mean, what a wonderful promise. But then the picture of him, he's going to be murdered, is what Isaiah 53 is telling us. He's going to suffer an unspeakably violent death. The one who is supposed to put an end to violence is going to suffer violence instead. How can that be? How can our hope be for the one who would end violence? How, how can he suffer and be killed a violent death if he was the one who was supposed to stop it? It's confounding to the reader. The other aspect of this picture that's so confounding is the vicariousness of his death as well. He's going to die, and he's going to die violently. He's going to be cut off from the land of the living, he said. But also, it's going to be for us. That's a strange idea. He'll be offered as a guilt offering, God says in Isaiah. We will be made clean because he is going to be laid low. He's going to suffer for us. He's going to die for us. Now, for Christians today, that's, this is all great and it <laughs> sounds fine, but that's not fine. <laughs> Human sacrifice is strictly forbidden. You know, the Pentateuch makes that very, very clear all the way through that you could never offer a human. Life could never be offered for somebody else's life. That would be, that would be breaking God's law. How, how is this going to work? This can't be what it says it is this, this prince of peace can't die and he can't die in our place or for the place of other people without breaking God's law. And then the final piece of the image of Isaiah 53 that seems so shocking is just how voluntary it is. Right? He offers no defense. He offers himself for it. It's as if he willingly dies. Suicide, the Pentateuch speaks pretty strongly against that as well. But here you have this prince of glory, this prince of peace is going to come. He's going to suffer unspeakable violence and death. And he's going to do it on our behalf. And he's going to willingly offer himself. It's an incredibly controversial picture of the Messiah. And it's not the Messiah that we would necessarily have wanted so how can this image make sense? Again, the image only makes sense. This Messiah only makes sense if it's Jesus Christ, if it really is the Son of God. 
this true elder brother who came to save us. If it's truly God himself, then it makes sense. Who can put an end to violence? Whose death would be enough? Only the maker of the universe. Who could offer themselves? Who could offer life? The reason God says we can't offer our lives, we can't take human sacrifices, we can't commit suicide is because our life is not ours. This isn't your life. You can't give it because it wasn't never yours. It was God's who gave it to you. Only the author of life could give his life to give life to others. The picture only makes sense if this is Jesus. And it's a stark picture of a God who would suffer for us, a God who would endure violence for us, a God who didn't just leave us lost and on our own, but who came and who paid a tremendous cost, went through tremendous suffering to give us life. And if this is true, if this is true, and remember that was what we kind of talked about last week with that story of the two brothers. Jesus gave us a bad elder brother in that story, an elder brother who is bitter and angry when the younger brother comes back so that we would long for a true elder brother who would go at great cost to bring us home. Well, that's what we see here in Isaiah 53, the cost that God would pay to bring us home. And if Isaiah 53 is true, if this image is true, it changes everything. And because of Isaiah 53, God can say what he says in Isaiah 54. Because what you see in Isaiah 54, and this is the effect of the gospel, Right, the effect of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the effect of Isaiah 53, the effect of Jesus dying on the cross in our place, this, which has become such white noise to us as Christians, right, that idea of God's death on the cross, it's just become common now. But if this good news, if this gospel is true, it changes us, it restructures our hearts. It melts and reforms the way that we, the way that we love. Because in Isaiah 54, as Deirdre read about this barren woman, sing for joy, you barren woman. We have to pause there. This imagery that Isaiah uses, that God uses through Isaiah in Isaiah 54 of a barren woman, a barren woman has no reason to sing. In the ancient world, in this time, in this culture, having children was everything. Everything. Having children, the ability to have children and multiple children, you would have to have eight, ten children, ideally, because most are not going to make it to adulthood. But you need to have children. The amount of children you have is the amount of security you're going to have as a family, your children provide for you. They take care of you. They're the way your family line is going to continue. Your land will be held. But also, as a nation, if people are not having children, you will not be a strong nation. You'll be overrun by your oppressors. The security that comes through children, the safety that comes through children, and for women, the value, their value came from the amount of women that they could have. This idea of having kids so valuable. If you could not have children, right, or if you could imagine women in the ancient world, I guess, sitting around a well, and one of them saying, I think I'm just going to have one kid. Are you insane? Like, do you want to die? Is that why you're... What? 
what are you talking about, one child? Or maybe I'll, I won't have kids. Maybe I'll adopt. What are you talking? No, you, this, is, this is everything. This is everything for you is to have children. Your whole life is built around having children. So if you couldn't have children in that world, you were worthless. Worthless. You had no value. Zero value to culture and society. And here God is telling this woman who has no value to sing. Now this represents the natural inclination of our heart, right, is to turn good things into ultimate things. Having children is a good thing. Right? Having children is a very good thing. It is a blessing by God. This culture turned that into an ultimate thing. That if you don't have children, your value is nothing. And we look, we have a tendency we have a tendency to look from our culture today and say, oh, thank goodness we don't live in a culture like that that oppresses women, that tells women, oh, they have to have so many kids and their value comes from childbearing. Thankfully, our culture is not like that. Right? But the reality is our culture is exactly like that. We've replaced those good things with other good things and made them ultimate things. But this is every culture does this we take a good thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing. If you don't have this, if you don't achieve this, you are nothing. Rachel in the Old Testament with children, right? If I don't have a child, if I can't have a child, I'd rather, I'd just die. <laughs> I just would rather die. We have the same issues today. Every culture does. You can change the thing. Today it may not be raising children or having children, but it, right, in the ancient world, women didn't suffer from eating disorders. Why? Our culture, every culture will ultimately crush you. Every culture holds up some good that you have to have to be successful. For you, have to, for you to have meaning and value in a society, men, women, everyone, every culture pushes upon us some good thing and says, this is it. If you want to have a place, if you want value, if you want security, if you want safety, you have to have this. If you don't have this, you might as well not be in our society. Every culture will crush us if we let it. And all of us have felt that weight, that crushing weight of society and culture's expectations upon us. You feel like, I can never, when will I ever be able to meet it? For me, it was middle school. I really feel for middle school kids. I remember going to junior high. For the, I was homeschooled up till junior high. And I remember going to junior high and it didn't go well, as you can imagine. I went to middle school, for the, and I dressed in the same outfit as the teacher. I didn't know what kids were supposed to wear. I just got ridiculed. So fine, all right, I went home. All right, here's what I have to buy. I got to get your bow jeans. I don't know if you remember those jeans. Uh, they had a little white tag on the fly. I have to get a pair. They were like $60, which I had to buy those jeans. I had to get Jordan shoes, and I had to have a Nike t-shirt. I just, that's it. I had to have it. And I mean, I was, I was like, Rach, I, Dad, either this or I die. Like, I, it's it. This is it. The cult, this is what they tell me I have to wear. And so I, I got it. My dad graciously bought those things for me. He never should have. And he knew where this was going to go. And I wore that to school, and it wasn't enough. Right? Oh, look, he's trying. And I only had one outfit to wear. All the cool kids had all these other. You never can do it. Right? The culture... The weight of that burden 
is always on us and it always travels with us. What do I have to do? Who do I have to be to fit in? What will it take for me to find value? And what Jesus is offering us, if Isaiah 53 is true, Jesus offers us a way out. He offers us freedom, an inner emotional freedom, because you can imagine the turmoil, the pain, and the hurt of this barren woman. Jesus says, sing. Right? There's freedom from this inner turmoil, the inner enslavement, that inner voice that's telling you you're not good enough, you'll never fit in, you're never good. And freedom from that cultural oppression that says you have to do this, you have to be this way if you're going to matter. Jesus offers us a way out. God is saying there is a value and a worth that is greater than having children, which to that woman is unfathomable. So whatever that cultural narrative is, whatever you think gives you that value, that worth, that idol in your life, right, this good thing that you've made an ultimate thing, if it's your family, your home, God is saying, I can offer you something that's even greater, that's of far greater value and worth than that. And he tells the woman, it's me, right, in Isaiah 54, your maker is your husband, Christianity is unlike any religion out there. Christianity is not like religion. It's unlike any philosophy, any religion in the world. Every religion, every philosophy tells us that you have to try very, very hard, and then you will receive a reward at the end. Every philosophy tells us this. Secularism, religion, everyone says that. If you live a certain life, at the end you'll be rewarded for it. You'll be rewarded. Either you're going to get, you'll reach nirvana, you'll reach enlightenment, you'll reach heaven, you'll get some sort of reward. Or if you're a secularist, I will have lived a good life that I will be remembered well, that'll be my reward. I'll leave a legacy, I will have left an impact, I will change things. I will do all of these things, and one day I'll be rewarded for it. That's religion, that's philosophy. Christianity is unlike that because in Christianity, what God is telling this woman, right? It's not in the future. It's right now. In Christianity, you have the verdict now, not at the end. You have the result. You have the prize. You have everything given to you now. The moment you believe, you have it. That's how this woman can sing. Why could she sing now? In heaven she'll sing. No, now you have me. You have everything given to you. There is no try, try, try and hopefully get a reward. You've been given everything on the front end. You don't need to look to anything else for your value and for your worth. This is the hope of the gospel. That Jesus has secured us Jesus has given us our worth and our value that we no longer have to look to anything to give us value, to give us value, to give us worth, to give us hope. When we find our delight and our satisfaction not in the good things, because all these things are good, having children is good, but when we no longer find our delight there, when we no longer get satisfied by that, we're set free. 
when our souls rest in Jesus. There's all this imagery in the hymns and the songs, right? And it's true. When my soul rests in Jesus, like I rest in my bed at the end of an incredibly long day. When I savor Jesus, like I savor an amazing meal, right, after, being, after camping or traveling. When I drink of Jesus, as if I've been in a desert, when I've done that, when I, when I savor him, when I rest in him, I'm set free. I'm set free from my inner emotional bondage, and I'm set free from the cultural oppression that whatever culture, every culture oppresses us with. I'm set free. I'm no longer enslaved to that inner voice that tells me I'm not good enough and to that cultural voice that says I'm not good enough. We're set free the freedom of the gospel, the freedom now for this barren woman, the freedom for us that if the gospel is true, I've been set free to actually love and enjoy the good things of this world. Because that's the, the irony of it or the, the, what's so hard about this is that we feel like if I don't find my satisfaction in these good things, I mean, what, what am I supposed to do? I'll lose them. I'll lose my children. I've been putting so much hope and dedication. My life goes into this. This is where I get my satisfaction from. This is where I run to when I'm tired. And if I don't find satisfaction there, I'm going to lose those things. But no, right? Christ is really clear on this. No, you'll get those things. It's the one who's lost everything who then gets everything. We are free now to actually enjoy and love and live in culture without being crushed by our culture, without being crushed by the things that we love, without being right, just so enslaved to them. Because you, you know how this works. These, thing, these good things in our life we become enslaved to because now when it doesn't go our way, when I don't get what I wanted, if it was from my children, or if it's from my employer, if something doesn't go right, I can't function, right? I'm enslaved to them. They're good things, but now I need them. I need to control them. They give me life. I'm not free from them. I'm not loving them. I'm not enjoying them, right? I no longer can enjoy these things because I need them so much. The freedom of the gospel tells us, right, you have everything you ever could have needed. Your maker is your husband. What more good do you need? And when we have that, it reorders, it restructures my heart to the point where now I love God. I find my satisfaction in him. This was the promise of Jeremiah. This is the promise of the prophets that one day we would love our Lord. I love God. I'm satisfied in Him. And when I'm satisfied in Him, I can actually love my culture, love the good things of my life, and not be crushed by them. The second thing that the gospel does for us, that I think we see here in Isaiah, and we see throughout all of Scripture, is it also reverses our values. So if this is true, if Christ suffered and died in my place, can't love the same way that I've been loving anymore. My heart changes. The way that I love has to change. But also the things that I value are going to change. 
So in Isaiah 54, he gave us two images. He gave us two images of a barren woman and of a new city. And the city, this image of a city with all of those precious stones and crystals and agates, and it's an unbelievable city. And this is to a people whose city is nothing, who's been over, overrun, who've been taken away into captivity, whose walls have been torn down. But the promise, the hope, is of this new city, a city that if it was built this way, was impregnable, right? So completely secure. If you got diamond walls, <laughs> this is a city that's not going anywhere. The safety of this city, the wealth of this city, the beauty of this city, beyond comprehension. It's an incredibly beautiful, incredibly wealthy, incredibly secure city. And what God is telling us and telling the people of Israel, this is where things are going. Right now, your city is crushing you. Right now, your culture is crushing you. Right now, you are taken captive physically and emotionally. But that won't always be the case. The way the city is now is not always the way the city is going to be. There will be a day in which this new city will come, and it will be glorious. And it'll be secure. And everything we need will be provided for us in that glorious city. He gives us the ending to the story. And we start to see then the first fruits of that now. Right? We can look at our city and our values change. Right? We see that the city we're living in, whatever that city is, right? And we, the greater Twin Cities area, we can see the culture, we can see the city we live in, we can see it's the first fruits of the new city. We see the beauty. We can see beautiful things in the places that we live. But we also see the flaws in our city. And we know the things that will be replaced. And we know that the hurt and the injustice will not always be there. And what that does for us is it enables us and it enabled them to work for that city. We don't invest my value. I don't put value in this city. I do. But my value, my hope is in the future city. I work for that future city. I care about this city. I work for justice and reconciliation. I do things for the poor and the oppressed, not because I need that, not because I need this city on earth to become the heavenly city, but because it will become this beautiful city. My values shift. I can see the work that God is doing. I know that God's heaven will come to earth, and the way that the world is supposed to be, it will be that way. And when I know that, I'm now set free to actually participate in God's plan for those things. My values shift. I no longer live in this world for myself. I no longer build a little kingdom for my own, but I participate in God's kingdom building. I participate in his church, right? This Titus, the church we've been going through, the plan, the purpose, the mission that we're on, why would I give myself to that mission? Why do I give myself? Why do I pour myself out so freely for others? Why do I give my money, my time to the church? Why do I give my time and my money to my city, to my neighbors? Why would I invest in anything here if it's all going to be burned up? If there is no God, this all gets burned up when the sun explodes. Why invest it all? Because it doesn't. Because it's going to be beautiful. 
it's going to be glorious. There's going to be a new city. Jesus is building it here. He's starting that work through us. I invest in it. I value those things. I give my life for God's plans and purposes. But I do it through the gospel. My hope is not in how much I will be able to transform this city, this culture. My hope is in the gospel. Because that's where we really start to see the power that comes through it. Like this barren woman idea. Like, I don't know if you've noticed this in scripture. Like, why so many barren women? It, all the way through. There's a lot of barren women who are highlighted in the Bible. Christ wins our salvation through losing. I don't know if, you, if you've seen that in the gospel. Right, Isaiah 53. He didn't win our salvation through victory. He did it through losing by being crushed, by being ashamed, by suffering a shameful, pitiful death. Not the brave, strong death of a martyr, but a weak death. He lost. He lost his followers. He lost his trial. He lost on the cross. He couldn't even stay alive for a day. Victory, salvation was achieved through losing. He achieves power through service. Right? He gave away his power. He serves is how he achieved power in this world, how he demonstrated his power. He came to wealth through giving everything away. There's a complete reversal of what this world values in Jesus Christ. Those that receive salvation are not the strong. And the Bible clearly has been pointing that out all the way through. Everyone, culturally, who should is the weak and powerless and has no value. It's not the strong that gets salvation, but rather those that admit they are weak and they are lost are the ones who get salvation. Jesus pulls off a complete reversal of the values of the world, a complete reversal of the values of our culture, a complete reversal of all of these values. Because salvation is now achieved by Jesus through weakness, and it's received through weakness, it creates a people that's radically different. It creates a people of weakness. He achieves salvation through weakness, and we receive it through weakness. It's not through strength. We don't achieve salvation through strength. It doesn't come to the strong by being stronger. Every other, every other philosophy and religion tells us that, gives us that hope that you could be stronger, you can be better. No. Our God, our King, entered into weakness, showing us the way to enter into that same weakness. So it creates a people that have a radically different understanding of the world. It look completely different, have a different set of values, have a different way of living in this world because of that experience of salvation. Because they see Jesus for who he is and they see what Jesus does that we can't, I can't live the same way anymore. Right? We look at things differently. I look at power differently than the way that this world looks at power. We have to. I see power very, very differently. I see recognition 
differently. I see status differently. I look at wealth very differently. What the gospel does is it creates a people who are radically different, a new people, a new family, a new city within a city, a people within people that have a very different understanding. And not necessarily because we live a separate life from everybody else, but we live our lives with very different values than everybody else. And why is that? And we're not talking about moral values. We're not talking about the sins, but we're talking about the things that we actually, where we find our value from. We find our value not from getting power, not from being recognized all the time, not from wealth. So it creates a new people. But it starts with us seeing Jesus for who he truly is. We have to see him because maybe you've never let him actually melt your heart and restructure it. Maybe you've never let him change the way that you love. Many of us are really fine with having Jesus as our king. The idea of Jesus as this conquering king who's going to make peace, who made peace, and who's coming again to make peace. Some of us like Jesus as the king. For many of us, he may be your example, he may be your friend, but he's not your savior. He only becomes your savior when your heart is melted by the great cost and suffering that he went through on your behalf. We have to let Jesus restructure our hearts. We have to look at Christ until we can sing. Many of us are this barren woman full of bitterness and feelings of not worth things. Your hope is for heaven maybe one day. Your hope is in the future. You feel enslaved to sin. You feel enslaved to culture. You hear this inner voice all the time telling you, right, you're not good enough. You don't matter. You're never going to amount to anything. You need to hear the voice of God speaking to you, right, saying to you what he says to Jesus, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Your husband is your maker, or sorry, your maker is your husband. We have to see what Christ did on our behalf. We have to see the cost to bring us home, to reconcile us to him, to give us life, to give us hope. And it's when we see him for who he truly is that we can look to him, we can savor him, we can sing, we can pray, we can seek him. So I invite you, if you've never really done this, or if you've always believed in Jesus your whole life, which is great, but it's not enough to have a restructured life, to have a restructured heart. I'd invite you to move beyond just knowing about Jesus, just believing in Jesus, but to let him have his way with you, to let him melt and reform your heart. If you're tired of being enslaved, the anxiousness and the fear, let him change you. Seek him. Pray to him. 
sing of him. Let that image of the suffering servant, of God himself suffering for us, melt you. And don't move away from it until it does it. Right? Don't just give it 30 seconds and say, all right, I got it. Jesus died for me, that's fine. Meditate on it. Think on it. Let, let the gospel penetrate your heart and change the way that you love. Change the things that you value. And as a people who do this, we will look drastically different. Who have been satisfied with Christ, we're set free. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your suffering on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, we confess to you how quickly our heart turns to so many things for our joy and our satisfaction and our peace, our value and worth. How often we love the things of this world more than we love you. And Lord, we thank you that no matter what we do, you are unchanging. And you have secured for us everything that we will ever need. We thank you, Lord, for that hope that we have now and that will be fully experienced when you come back. Lord, strengthen us that we would know that love. That our hearts would be moved. We don't want to be people who just know your word We don't want to be a people who have heard, but who don't love. So Lord, continue the work that you have started in each of us. Lord, help us to be reformed by you. In your name we pray. Amen.